going around the Kaaba and whistling, or going around the Kaaba and clapping, or going around the Kaaba naked. We do have some reports that he would be in the vicinity of the Kaaba and worshipping fully clothed, and that he would be told by others, um, why do you sit in this rather strange fashion going on, speaking and so on? Um, what was your, the other part of the question, going around the Kaaba and what? We don't know what type of worship, we don't know what type of worship. Um, we do know that he would sit for hours talking to God. And um, what he would say, we don't know. He didn't even report what he would say, and Khadija's politeness um, contributed to us not knowing what is it that he would, he would say. We know that he would also complain to God about his alienation. That part is very prominent, that he would complain to God his dismay, his, his marginality, his unhappiness about uh, his social context. He would complain to God about his dismay, was about his restlessness, and his um, you know, the, 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 all the Arabic transmissions, Abuthu Hammi or Ashku Hammi, Ilallah, all of them that I would complain, uh, share, express my agonies to God. And we know that he, he found a lot that he was extremely disturbed by in society. Everything from the treatment of animals, um, we, even before his prophecy, we, we have several reports about his interference to uh, prevent the treatment of animals, the, the mistreatment of animals after he became a prophet. But before he was a prophet, we, we have some reports of him uh, attempting to stop the chopping up, chopping up of, um, um, uh, what do you call it, a shah, a cow, uh, or a buffalo. Um, with, with some pagan practices was that they would chop off the feet and cut off the feet, offer it, and cut off another leg and offer it, and then the neck eventually. Yeah. Yeah. The, and also, a couple of incidents where he intervened to, to stop the beating of a donkey, one of them, and another of an old horse. Um, 
he was unhappy about the burial of the girls. He was unhappy about the treatment of the slaves. He was unhappy about the condition of the of the poor. And we know that many of his of of his dismay was about that. He was also offended about the public display of obscenities in his society. So we know that he confides or he, he tells Khadija that he finds the tendency of the elders and the councilmen and the young people of of the prominent families in Quraysh to uh, have intercourse with um, with their slave girls in sort of orgies to be um, disgusting or offensive. We also know that he was dismayed, unhappy about the tents with the red flags, the prostitution tents. But interestingly, even later on, he, he does not burn them and, and, and slaughter their inhabitants. But he, he clearly found them to be a distasteful institution. Other than that, we don't know. Other than the fact that he would complain to God about his alienation. Um, we don't know. We, there is no indication at that point that he is aware, except in the most general typical Arab Qurayshi sense of figures such as Abraham or Moses or so on. The only um, mention shortly out after his Islam, after he becomes a prophet, is of Abraham and Moses and he doesn't express, he doesn't say when he hears about them from Waraka, who are these? He seems to know more or less who they are, but clearly the Quran starts educating them about these figures. They were generally, but in a very mythical way, um, as uh, and it is not even clear how they were known. But it is, the Qur'an is quite explicit about the fact that you really know about the prophets from what we tell you. And this is your only authentic source. And don't accept the, uh, the rest. Yeah, well, well, we don't have a ma'asur, a full du'a, but we have the Prophet ﷺ incidentally commenting about what he was doing at the time. So he would say things like, especially in reports about the revelation, so he'd say, وَكُنْتُ فِي غَارْ حِرَاءَ hammi إِلَى اللَّهِ Yeah, meaning to... Yashku, Abutu is to, to um, emit, like, uh, a bath is to broadcast something, but, um, or Ashku sometimes is used, um, 
in other in others he would say that uh, any I was offended I was upset by uh, such and such and such in Mecca and then he would right away say that that I was complaining to God and so we we can assume that in the context that he was talking to God about what upset him uh, but we don't we don't know other than he took this extremely seriously and that when and that he would not talk about it he would not share with Khadija or others not even his grandfather um, was quite close to him what he did and in one report that I found although I, I don't know it's an isolated report is that Ali his cousin asks him if he can join him in one of his retreats and he says no Allah I don't know Um, we uh, a few questions after each session, but we have to put a strict limit. Okay, one more question. Oh, what? We don't. We don't know. I mean, the Arabic itself that is used idiomatically. It is only used when you are complaining in a supplication but there is no indication that he is talking to God wanting something specific I mean so there is no indication that he is saying I want to be a leader so I can change things he seems to rejoice when he is able to do good in society like resolve the issue with, with the Kaaba or rejoice when he frees slaves even before he is called to, as a prophet so we know that every time Khadija gave him a slave he freed him or freed her every single slave Khadija gave him as a gift he, he, and he seemed to rejoice at that idea um, he, he, but at the same time, we don't get a sense from any of the reports that this is someone who is asking God, please God, make me rich so I can use the money to, or make me a very important leader so I can do X, Y, and Z. It is very much, and it's not even clear that, what is clear is that he is finding companionship, that in his, in his younger age as a child, the companionship that he found in isolation, silent isolation, 
by being this rather shy, timid child who would often be found sitting alone, just staring at the sky or at the water or at, the, or at the, uh, a rock. We have reports of him just sitting and holding a stick and looking at his stick. Um, becomes altered in a companionship in something that he seemed to hold very privately, very dearly and very privately. Now, of course, different people have guessed about this notion of what is, why. Well, it is clear that he did not feel comfortable in sharing what is it that he was um, actually, who is it that he was engaging in, in, these, in these periods? When he does, people call him insane. And apparently, it was for him, as he, as, as in fact, becomes, is demonstrated throughout his, his message as a, as a, as a prophet, there was safety in appearing like a strange hermit that goes off and, 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 and so on, than saying, God talks to me. Because remember, the, the, the uh, Qurayshis strongly believed that God was a disinterested God. That God was only interested through God's representatives. And God's representatives were the idols and the, uh, the uh, priests, priestesses, usually women priests, who represented the idol. And even then, God would sort of intervene just because you given up something really big for God to intervene, but God ultimately was not interested in human affairs. And, and there was no heaven, there was no hellfire, God didn't care enough to punish anyone, or reward anyone. And the most that God was going to do for you was that God was going to come in and say, okay, fine, you know, you slaughtered all these camels for your trade to be successful, okay. I'll do it, but don't think I love you or like you or anything. I have no interest in you. And that was very much the, the Qurayshi creed. Now, the Ahnaf talked of the God of Abraham and the God of Moses, but they did not have a clear view of hereafter or heaven. In fact, in the in the, the Old Testament itself, there there isn't an emphasis on heaven and hell. I mean, quite likely, the early sages didn't like these passages and took them out from the from the original um, uh, Torah. And I mean, the, as one notices in Jewish history, there was a tendency to sort of make the Jewish tradition very human-friendly. 
and uh, to make it all about human beings from beginning to end. Um, so even the Ahnaf, it wasn't clear whether they, they had a conception of heaven or of hell. Now, it is quite possible that the Prophet came to a vague, imprecise notion that God did care. But this notion, and that God had a personal relationship with him, perhaps, but apparently this was such a bizarre notion in society that he doesn't even confide in Khadijah. He doesn't even go and tell Khadijah, you know, these guys are wrong, God does care, and I advise you to develop your relationship. Mean, she's older, and he might have been worried with the age expectancy of people back then. You know, he had every reason to believe that she might die in, in her late 40s, and her early 50s, but he doesn't, and there is no, there isn't any report from Khadija saying that, well, he came to me and he said, you know, Khadija, you really should start wising up. We don't even have a report from him telling Khadija, don't you dare go and, and offer anything to the idols. We don't know if she did. Khadija doesn't herself report on it. All she says is that the Prophet she would know when he was displeased with her when he became silent and grave looking now and then she would worry very much when that would happen but we don't know why he would be displeased with her could it have done with idol worship could it have related to her offering something for the sake of her trade. So, my, my as, as I said, this is an assessment. And from reading what I read, my feeling is, is that he had a feeling. A feeling that grew up from childhood with him. That he found a great degree of comfort and companionship In some people befriend a dog, some people befriend a book, and he befriended an, an imprecise entity that is the God of Abraham. But he was not quite clear and sure about what is it that he has befriended and in fact when it starts manifesting itself in the revelation of, of, of Gabriel he is in absolute terror because it is as if you know it is as if you sit and you talk I mean, this is a bad analogy, but it will it will achieve the the, the, the purpose. It's as if you you constantly talk to your favorite doll, and then one day it actually answers back to you. 
Um, except that here, I mean, something more animate than Adol perhaps is... So, I mean, you, you talk to your favorite bird who you, who you have a feeling understands you and loves you. And you don't care if people say that birds don't love humans and don't distinguish between one human and another. You feel you know that you're a bird and then one day your bird actually starts talking to you. And, but all of this is, is something that we suspect and we know that he didn't want, he didn't seem to want to corrupt it by sharing it with anyone. Um, and another remarkable thing about him is that he is he doesn't seem to be yet at that point in his life aware that one possibility is to travel and to go to hermits because Arabia had not not uh, I mean particularly northern Arabia closer to Sham and Iraq had a tradition of these people who would isolate themselves from society and become hermits and they would create often a one-room space in which they would worship now worship didn't mean worship they actually didn't pray but what they did was they would just sit and talk to God and there was that tradition and in fact even after the prophecy, the Prophet ﷺ, when he orders Muslims not to kill one of them, he says, these people, leave them alone, even if they don't become Muslim. But it doesn't seem to occur to him that he should perhaps travel and go meet with these people and ask them about the ancient secrets or, or whatnot. And in fact, we don't even have reports about him having long conversations with Waraka uh, before the, the revelation. He, even after the revelation, it is Khadija who goes to talk to Waraka. And the Prophet himself now, is not keen about, about sitting with Waraka and say, and saying, oh, tell me everything you know. Now, it is, the reason for that has always fascinated me. And it always fascinated me because it indicates the rather remarkable degree of compassion and empathy that the Prophet had for society but yet remarkable degree of independence of mind and, depend and independence of morality as well that qualified him to be who he is that there is a pristineness and purity about him 
that seem to be quite innate to him, quite natural to him. And um, that ultimately gives him a remarkable degree of strength in withstanding censor and hostility when it comes. It, it doesn't seem to be something that being alone, marginalized and rejected is not something that is entirely shocking to his system. And he responds to it in the way he's always responded to it by extremely heartfelt supplication towards God, talking to God. And as I was planning to talk about later, that this becomes a significant aspect of personifying the Prophet that development of an intimate relationship in which you, your partnership with God is not a partnership of laws, just, and not a partnership of tangible reality, physicality, just, but it is a partnership of the intangible and the supernal, the that that doesn't have concrete form. Uh, the ability to be hurt and turn to God with your hurt is far more a part of the personality, of the persona of the prophet than the turning of your hurt, with your hurt to other human beings. And I, I was going to talk, I'm going to inshallah talk more about what all of this means and so on. But there is a very remarkable and, 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 and revolting tendency among people to deal with hurt by demanding the attention of fellow human beings attention in the sense of saying I need to bring my hurt to you either so you share it with me or you make me feel better or whatever but there is this tendency quickly escalates into an alienation from a relationship with Allah because the repository of your hurt is another human being, that means a lack of development of your relationship with God. And we human beings are able to share with God our sadness much more than we are able to share with God our happiness. When Rarely when we are happy are we able to turn to God and have a heartfelt moment. But when we are sad, this is just the, our, our scummy nature. Uh, when, we are, when we are sad, we are able to have these sincere and honest moments with God. But we compound the problem 
when we share our happiness with human beings and share our sadness with human beings and it is remarkable that not only that the Prophet continued to do this later on in his life and, and, and I will go to talk about the parameters of it but transmitted it, conveyed it to his wives so that Aisha herself reaches the point where she tells him I don't complain to you my, my, my hurt I complain to my God and the Prophet accepts it am I supposed to wait? Well, I'm, I'm going to end in like two minutes you want to catch two minutes? Uh, and the Prophet himself reacts to this as if it is or with the belief in fact that it is the most normal thing but it's, uh, it's an important point that cannot be exaggerated because no matter how many times a human being listens to it hears it our tendency to um, relate much better to what is tangible and concrete physical is very strong and and consequently the, the temptation is, is very powerful and it takes a lot of practice to be able to develop a, a, a relationship as honest and as rich and as sincere with the intangible and in this case God now of course for a Muslim I mean, here is the Prophet developing a relationship at a time when he believes in God but he's not sure what God is now for a Muslim you're, the early stages of Islam or the stage of the vast majority of Muslims in today's now and day and age is not very different from that I mean, our level of, of education Islamic education or miseducation is that we believe in God but we have no idea what God is and yet when we find the way that the Prophet ﷺ responded to the situation and in fact his continuous response is to put in the time and the effort and the energy into developing this type of relationship the other thing is that in various reports when uh, it, it occurs from companions when the companions are, are asked why why is there the the why is there the advice that you turn with your with your hurt towards God rather than other people and then other the the the, the response is that other than the fact that it develops your relationship with God that turning to other people or the expectation of turning to other people produces hate and enmity 
in human beings. And one can, one can imagine if the Prophet ﷺ turned with his hurt and alienation and agony towards his people, there would have only been hate and enmity and anger and spite rather than the purity of his character. And I think this is more relevant for, for Muslims than it is even for non-Muslims in the sense that it is far relevant, more relevant for a person when they become a Muslim, when they are a Muslim. Um, otherwise we live and die in a fog. Yeah, no, there is no, there, there is no protest because he, he doesn't say, doesn't use the word protest. He's, it is exactly the the expression as you say, I share my agonies with God, or I confide in God my hurt. Um, but he is not. It doesn't even, we don't even know if he expected God to do anything about it. We don't, we don't know. Um, Allah Allah. Okay. Let's break. Alhamdulillah. Okay, continuing on with the, um, with the, the halaqas on the life of the Prophet Yesterday, we emphasized the issue of approach and sources when it comes to the life of the Prophet and the distinction between the official public or the history of institutions and the history of the person in their non-institutional um, reality, non-institutional manifestations. And I emphasize that part of the problem is intellectual timidity in trying to come up with an actual position about the persona of the prophet and um, commit oneself rather than limit oneself to what is safe and that is the institutional and official history of the Prophet. Now, furthermore, 
there is a different type of problem and that is often the reports we encounter about the Prophet makes a God-fearing, a pious person rather embarrassed and ashamed in the sense that much of what he does is too beautiful for the senses to absorb and leave one with an overwhelming sense of guilt and it is quite common for people to deal with an overload of their senses a trauma to the senses um, a demand and um, an excess of their ability by compartmentalizing, segmenting, and shelving away uh, what they cannot handle. This phenomena is, is quite common and it's um, human beings do it to different degrees and it is a part of their fog there is no question about that it is a part of their hujub and the only question is to what extent do they do it and as a corollary matter what extent are their fogs and their, their hujub so that often when dealing with the example of something that is truly pristine in beauty what our mind does or what we allow our mind to do is to label it very much like when you when you uh, you, you have um, uh, too much of a certain type of good entering into your province so you label it and you shelve it away to future processing you know like an overflow of papers in your den so you the, the, the temptation and it's something that I do the temp- with papers at least is that you pile the papers up somewhere and say well I'll get to it and you deal with the overload in that fashion the and the label that we throw on it is the label of the ideal is okay well this is an ideal this is an ideal situation an ideal persona and because it's ideal, because it's idealistic, then it is broken off in our mind, segmented, and shelved to future processing, and shelved to till you get to it. Now, of course, you and I know that you will never get to it. 
And that's part of the whole process. This, this pile of paper will be there a year from now, two years from now, forever. And, and very much like the examples of the Prophet that are branded as ideal, not consciously, but in, in the mechanisms of the person's, of a person's emotions and psychology, um, you will never get to them. But it is this hopefulness, it is this wishfulness about them that allows you to survive the overload. In the sense, what I mean by survive the overload is that it permits you to tell yourself, well, I am not all that bad. I am not a bad person because, look, I didn't discard the material. I didn't throw it in the garbage can. I'm going to get to it. And we even tell ourselves, don't rush me. Don't push me. Okay, fine, I'll get to it. But, as in all cases, when you often react with, don't push me, don't rush me, it's a defensive mechanism of the cowardly type. What it basically boils down to is, I don't want to confront it. I know what's right and I don't want to do it. And so, part of the effect of that Should I, should I stop every time the recording comes off or do you? Oh, yeah. So you're basically the, this, this shelving mechanism, this coping mechanism, is also one that produces a very regrettable effect. And the effect is, is that we show what is meaningful and impactful and we process what is institutional and formal. So that you will find, and this is a quite common phenomenon, so for example, if we read that the Prophet كان يعطي من لا يخشى إملاق that the Prophet would give the giving of someone who did not fear poverty now that is a scary idea there's no question it's a scary idea and it immediately calls upon us to idealize it to say, well, maybe that is him. 
just him. It is much easier, much safer to claim one's piety in the institutional history so that you will find people who, I mean to take a very simple, who are not at all anything like the Prophet was at his home, but yet if you, but yet they insist on a meticulous accounting of the data surrounding the Prophet's life. What, what I mean is that you will find people who, whose character, whose inside, is emptied, cleansed of the substance of the Prophet's beauty, but yet they know exactly the chronology of the Prophet's life and know all the specific data, and in fact guard this data, guard this institutional history, guard this, this official history with zeal. And the zeal is really nothing more than a projection of their guilt about their lack of substance about the life of the Prophet so that you will often find that when you are talking, you are taken a bit by surprise at the zeal that some have in memorizing names and ages and data, data that is retrievable by simply opening a book or by, or by computer. And yet there's nothing in their character that connotes a love or an absorption of the beauty of the Prophet. And what this is, is that the official history, the institutional history, becomes a salvation to the worst parts in our character. That is why, for example, when you find that Muhammad al-Ghazali, may Allah bless his soul, when he writes his book on Sirah, he is not, if you compare his book to um, the book of that Indian fellow, uh, Kafuri or Mubarak Furi, uh, you will find that Mubarak Furi, uh, won the Saudi prophet it's uh, it's uh, an interesting name because he really doesn't in there write about the book uh, as you know means the science of right the 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 awareness of, the knowledge of, and if in his book he doesn't really write about the science of hadith, he doesn't write about the science of traditions, he doesn't write about how to authenticate something or not to authenticate something, 
And so why the title for Kathira and his answer was to us is yeah, I am writing my knowledge, my assessment of the truth of the life of the Prophet I am not writing simply an official history of the life of the Prophet. And even then, he, wa- he felt that socially pressured by his publisher and others to include more official institutional history than he cared for. He was not interested in writing the number of casualties on the Muslim side in the Battle of Uhud versus the number of casualties on the Kuffar side or putting in the, all the, 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 the signposts of officialdom but nonetheless this is the, the age in which we live this is a rather crucial point because it is a, a personal point our unrelenting tendency to degrade everything to its least common denominator, our unrelenting tendency to take everything down to our level rather than rise to its level, our unrelenting tendency to demand accommodation of our weaknesses, our anxieties, our fears, our idiosyncrasies is the single barrier between us and knowledge of the Prophet you will never as I talked yesterday about the issue of the leap of faith you will never know the Prophet by a leap of faith and you will never know the Prophet as long as you remain you remain of priority in your own mind. In other words, it's like you will never love someone else as long as you love yourself more. First. You know, the the typical thing among married couples say, you don't love me, you love yourself. And there's often a lot of truth in this is that often we don't love people, we love what they do for us. And when we love what they do for us, we don't really love them. We simply love the, the service they provide for us. And while this is a human weakness that plagues human relationships, and that's a different topic altogether, but that weakness, when it comes to the seerah of the Prophet, is an absolute barrier to knowing the Prophet. And consequently, the idea that you can love the Prophet, you can know the Prophet, but remain who you are and demand that the Prophet be degraded to your mundaneness, come down to your level, is an impossibility. And very much like the moments of fog that you are supposed to capture yourself 
in that you are supposed to capture yourself as well when you are segmenting and shoving away the demanding parts of the Prophet's life. And when you are patting yourself on the back for your that you are a good person because you are focusing on the official institutional history of the of the Prophet and even if you show care in learning the personal aspects of the Prophet but this care the, 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 the willingness to, to learn is not in itself the end of the, the beginning or the end but it is what are you are going to do with this information and it is very important to be very sensitive to this idea of shoving it away as ideal or relevant in theory but not right now not right this minute and that is why Al-Qadi Ayyad when asked who are the true scholars of hadith and his response was this is a Shafi judge actually of very good intellectual quality when asked who are those that are the scholars of seerah who know the seerah is it those who memorize the hadith? And he said, no, it's not those who memorize the hadith. Is it those who know the life of the Prophet by heart? Those who memorize the name of a hundred companions? Those who can recite the name or an age of every woman the Prophet married? And he said, no, none of these. None of these are scholars of hadith or experts of seerah. So who is it? He said that who reads about the life of a prophet, a single story, and you find him a changed man the day after. In other words, it internalizes, and you can see the effect of the seerah. There is a crucial point and so in the piece that I wrote in which I talk about personification personification cannot be achieved by segmenting and shelving away okay This aspect is an another barrier to the access to the character, to the beauty of the Prophet. And it is a more, it is of all the barriers, it is the most demanding. Because those who are pious are often embarrassed 
by the reports and consequently the, the, the delving into the reports which exhibit the beauty of the Prophet as a person is is a personally painful process but at the same time there is a level a feeling that when the, ta- the, the, the reports the stories that demonstrate the beauty of the Prophet are talked about but remain like fairy tales of beauty in society there is an, an, an unavoidable feeling of of distasteful hypocrisy that comes upon the people and consequently there is a certain degree of detachment as we talk about these fairy tales what I'm saying is this that often even those who talk about the beauty of the Prophet speak about it after having themselves segmented it and idealized it so the speaker himself has already in their mind Taken taken this, this, these papers that came in and put them on a pile of the pile that I will get to eventually. And so when he shares with you these stories, you don't feel a personification, a personal engagement with these reports, but you feel as if you are hearing a fairy tale that it's packaged and ready for storage you see what I'm saying it's as if you are receiving a package already with the label on it for storage so you take it as presented to you and say ah well very nice very nice okay here let me store it this is killing the sunnah killing the truth of the sunnah the beauty of the sunnah the remarkable tendency in our day and age to to segment everything in our life which is a, an, as I as a, you've heard me talk about uh, previously in halakas is an ad is an aspect of modernity but to even extend this segmentation to the life of the Prophet ﷺ is one of the of the real travesties. Now, as I start talking about the Prophet ﷺ after the call to prophecy, there is a real dilemma, and the dilemma is which of the numerous pieces of evidence 
do I share with you and which which do I share with you and which do I not if we would share everything we would be here for weeks and making selections is one of the most intellectually draining and heart-wrenching acts um, I was late last night because of my indecision and again I found that the same indecision persists this morning and the indecision has been there for since I started thinking about the seminar uh, a week ago which of them do I share with you to share with you the way I see my beloved if you love someone and you want to tell others about your love for this someone what parts of their character or personality do you actually share and what parts do you put in the second place and and how do you share with them what you have developed as a personal engagement and a personal um, relationship with the beloved in other words even the reports are digested and processed inside of you in a very individual fashion and when you attempt to share them it is very difficult to transmit the full impact of the engagement so of course I made selections and I hope that the selections would emphasize aspects but it is very important to remember that these are not the only possible selections and that for every selection that I've made as a piles of book in, in my then attest there could, I could have easily made ten different others Sometimes I made selections because they're already commonly known and so they're not and sometimes I made selections because they're usually not known uh, it, it just depended on the, in the case okay one more point before then we start looking at these various selections 
remember that the Prophet والسلام, receives the call in Mecca and remarkably well well not remarkably but it's it's, it's sort of a personal remarkably his reaction to now receiving the call to prophethood is what? Huh? He runs, but before he he thinks that he runs to Khadija and seeks comfort in her. Already we start seeing aspects of his personality. This is at the same time that this man is capable of a remarkable independence of character. This is not someone who is needy. This is not someone who is dependent. This is not someone who only feels that he is worth something if his wife is, ne- is, is next to his side. This is also someone who is capable of periods, long periods of separation from his wife and his children which we know is from every single report we have about him and his children and in fact all children he is remarkably um, compassionate and loving towards so it would the, the number of reports about him picking up a child kissing a child hugging a child we'll look at some of these reports but not that many of them because they're, they're, they're just I, they're, they, they're just too enormous um, praying with a child on his shoulder, praying with a child on his arm, sitting a child on his lap and the child peeing on him, and him laughing and ordering water that he then um, washes stainless. There are numerous, and we know that his return from every trip, upon his return from every trip, and his return from every isolation, he immediately asks for the children. Where is such and such? And his face lightens up when he sees them. 
But at the same time, this person is capable of a remarkable degree of silent independence. He is not someone whose love for his wife and children translates into neediness of the type that says, for example, no, no, I can't bear to be separated from them a day, no, I can't have them out of my sight. And this person, when he confronts what he confronts in in uh, in Ghahira, his reaction is to run to Khadija. This has always been one of the things that have caused me pause and has caused numerous times of reflection. He runs to Khadija not just to tell her what he saw but for comfort and solace when when members of his family die and he is in in, in dire sadness when his children die, even his boys, Ibrahim and Qasim, well Ibrahim dies later, but Qasim and Abdullah I believe were the names of his first two children, boys rather. When they die, no, he does not run to Khadija or to, in fact, he comforts his wives or his daughter, depending on the death, but he himself but he himself is not in need he doesn't find his comfort in throwing himself in their arms. So why does he run to Khadija? One of the things that then strike you about this is that while in his, in his emotional longings, his emotional neediness, he tends to be stoutly alone. And we'll, we will see this time and, again, time and again. He tends to confront it alone. He does not tend to go to his wives or friends and complain at length. In fact, 
it is them that approach him often and say, well, what's wrong? Tell us what's wrong. And when he responds, he responds with a certain degree of conciseness and vagueness. But this is different. And what's different about it is that he is not running to Khadijah for personal comfort before a weakness. He is running to her as an intellectual thinking being. In other words, what is it that he is asking her? He's not asking her simply as in when someone dies, you say, you go to the person and say, comfort me, make me feel better. But that's not what he is going to Khadijah with. What he is going to Khadijah with is her assessment of his balance. The, 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 and which signifies a, a rather remarkable and inherent degree of respect for the person that he's with in that and, and this is something that is often missed by commentators in the contemporary age because it, it's, it's a remarkable flash into the, into the beauty of his personality. This is someone he's not going to go and cry on his wife's shoulder even when his son dies. But he respects his wife enough to share with her, not his troubles, but to share with her her assessment or to solicit from her her assessment of the situation itself. And in her assessment is his comfort. Which is of course later confirmed in the Quran by Shawirhum from Amr consult with them. But this is not an issue of consultation. And when he goes to Khadijah, he says, am I insane? He wants from her, he wants to know if in her considered opinion, something is wrong with him. Am I, uh, have I gone off the deep end? And Khadijah says, you are the most balanced human being I have ever known. That is impossible that you would be insane. And another significant aspect is that he, at this point, doesn't tell her, you know, Khadijah, don't you have a relative that is sort of knowledgeable? Why don't you go ask him? He doesn't do that. Who offers to ask Warakum? She does, right? Khadijah herself does. And that was another thing that always 
struck me about the personality of the Prophet If you are living with someone, if you don't have a very high opinion of, and it's not even a very high opinion, but um, I can't even describe it as impolite because it's not impolite. But if I'm married to someone and I have a type of problem, she has a relative that seems to be knowledgeable, I might be asking her what her opinion is, but I'm not really interested in her opinion. I'm interested in telling her to ask her relative's opinion, which ultimately is an indication that you don't have a very high regard for her particular opinion. So you would say, you know, I, I don't, isn't your, your uncle a banker and wouldn't he know about this? What, how about asking him what he thinks? But what always amazed me is the Prophet is not very interested in the opinion of, of her relative. It is the assessment of Khadija what matters which is a a remarkable degree of respect, the type of respect that can only be innate to an individual. Furthermore, even after the second event, when Waraka tells him what he tells him, Waraka tells him, well, you know, you, you are a prophet, you are the chosen one. we have no reports of him at this point gravitating to Warak. Now imagine if you receive if you if you take take the example of my wife's uncle who's a banker right there is no bank. I mean, I'm just, it's just a hypothetical. And you, you go to the banker and he says, you know what, you are a brilliant man. That thought that, that you, have, you have a great future. The tendency of people is to gravitate towards those who have give you a degree of self-affirmation a sense of worth but yet again we find that the prophet does not he hears it from him and as far as we know there isn't a, a third meeting with waraka do we have a report either of one meeting or a, or two meetings and that is it which is again a remarkable degree of independence of character but That's the official one.
Okay? Okay, so there is an independence of character as well as a, a, a generosity of character that is not exaggerated, that is not artificial, but genuine. Furthermore, after the revelation, there is a demand upon the Prophet which is an example for us all. And that is, this is a man whose nature is not confrontational. This is a man whose nature is somewhat introverted. This is a man who is used to until he is 40 years of age. This is not a young man anymore. Until he is 40 years of age, he has gotten used to being a person who's alone with a very private and personal relationship with his wife that is quite unique, that is limited in its um, a personality that is limited in its social interactions, a personality that doesn't have a visible political persona, but most importantly, a personality that is rather quiet, that is more at peace with thoughts and ideas remaining in its heart. Remember yesterday we talked about the fact that he didn't share, he didn't have discussions with Khadija about what he did in the cave. He is far more comfortable in his, in his privacy. And yet suddenly, after the message, the demand upon this man is remarkable. And the demand is what now? He is going to have to alter his personality in material and significant ways. He is going to have to get used to confrontation. This is a man who did not... There are people who, who are... Sorry. This is a man who is rather of sensitive character. Does not like to put himself in degrading situations or situations where people would get in his face. He doesn't like confrontations. He doesn't like being yelled at. We even know that even as a child, when he is yelled at, he because his face changes. And in his youth, he his face would change with unhappiness if anyone was rude to him. If one someone spoke to him rudely, his face would become sad and he would look to the ground. 
This is all in his youth, his childhood and his youth. And as, he's, and as he grew older, he didn't lose this characteristic about him. How is this rather introverted, pensive, sh- bashful, extremely bashful, shy, non-confrontational man going to now change after he has become 40 years old. In fact, his very, his first reaction to the message after he, his, his encounter with Khadija is extremely telling about him. What does he do? He goes and he covers himself with a blanket. He, or wraps himself in a cloth. And at least in two reports, he puts it on his face. Now, that again is indication, it's like, it's like revelation about the character of a person. He has gotten accustomed to dealing with trauma in this very personal non-obtrusive, non-confrontational manner. He doesn't say, you know, what I need today is the company of some friends. I need to get distracted. I need to forget what I saw. He doesn't say, you know, this is one day in my life that I really should get drunk. There's no prohibition against alcohol at this point. He didn't drink, but he's not. He, his reaction is not to find a distraction, and his reaction is not even to start telling Khadija, "Oh well, you know, let's. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make a list of all the people we can talk to about this, and let's start organizing for supporters." In fact, he seems quite oblivious. He doesn't, even after Waraka tells him that he's a prophet, he doesn't say, okay, well, here's the organizational pa- plan, people. Let's see who are the people that we can win. Waraka, who can you bring to us? Yeah. Which is quite plausible for a human to do. And even Khadija, who approaches Waraka, understands that she better not ask Waraka to do anything. And she better not ask anyone to do anything because she knows her husband. And she knows that her husband goes at his own dignified, pensive, introspective pace. And that she better not disturb that. She is not a young woman at this age, she's about 60 years old plus, or about 60. She is a very well established woman. She's not a bashful woman or a timid woman. She is one of the few women in Mecca who established a full business 
a very thriving, prominent business because of the strength of her character but she knows that if she wants the beauty of her husband to remain with her she's gonna have to go according to his pace not hers now this is not an idiosyncratic matter I mean it is not this is not someone who's lazy and she says okay well I'm gonna respect your laziness and this is not someone who is someone who's apathetic and she says I'm going to respect your apathy there's a difference between respecting someone's integrity and deferring to someone's idiosyncrasy deferring to someone's idiosyncrasy is wrong respecting someone's integrity is right all right now so this man is now after 40 years going to have to change a whole lot he's actually going to have to interact with people he is going to have to be confrontational sometimes he is going to have to suffer what he never liked to suffer and that is insults embarrassments degradations this is a someone someone with a lot of dignity and this is someone who is going to have to do it now so that when he runs into his bed and covers himself Allah sends Jibra'il to say get up you, we, we've already given you your break you remember this first time I came that was your break now get up get moving we don't there's no time to waste now this is one of these things that we of course segment because immediately when we think of this it emphasizes what Ibn Aqil centuries later says that it is not lawful for me to waste a single instant of my life and we will often find that the life of the Prophet is gripped by this ethic and it also means that some aspects of the transformation can be gradual and some aspects of the transformation must be pursued relentlessly now it is very interesting that in Islam what were the gradual things was it it was social behavior and aspects that had to do with laws such as drinking such as Hajj such as hijab or covering 
But when it came to the personal aspects, the, 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 the personal aspects of the character, I cannot emphasize the importance of this point. That when it came to the persona, the personality, the character of a person, how much gradualism do you see in the Quran? Does the Quran say, oh well, you know, it's okay to to lie for now, lie sometimes, say the truth sometimes? Does the Quran exhibit any gradualism about slander or black backbiting? Does the Quran exhibit any gradualism about the necessity of living a life of jihad in the way of Allah? Does the Quran exhibit any gra- any gradualism about spending in the way of God, about fighting your own stinginess, about worshipping God instead of yourself? In fact, if you reread the Quran and reread the Quran, you will find that the gradualism is in the ex- in the external laws. that we tend to treat as absolute and imperative now and treat the personal aspects as gradual. So we have completely reversed the process in the contemporary age. We are often not at all gradual with the laws. So if you remember the piece I wrote about the hijab and the shahada, we'll say, ah, well, you know, when it comes to the hijab, when it comes to the law, this law, like uh, the, the law of, of, of uh, interest and so on, and I'm just saying for the sake of argument that these are unequivocal binding laws, you know, that you must do them and you do them now. But when it comes to issues of self-purification, when it comes to issues of substance and beauty, when it comes to the issues that define the Prophet ﷺ in his essence, that is when we are extremely gradual. And that is also when we segment and idealize the life of the Prophet. So in other words, the laws are part of the institutional official history. And so we learn it. But when it comes to the personal characteristics, not the official institutional history, we segment it, idealize it, and shove it away. And then, in top of that, and as we say,